Ferris Lord Jesus, beautiful Savior. One of my favorite hymns, thank you so much. Good morning, friends, and welcome to our 945 service on this, the second Sunday of the season of Lent. It's good to be together to worship in this way. Uh, those of you joining us in person, many more we know, joining us online from all over the place. It's good to be together. Thank you. Uh, some of you are visiting with us. I met some before the service. Others, please uh, know that we are honored and humbled and grateful that you've come. We hope you'll come back. We hope you'll leave us some contact information so that we can uh, be, reach out to you this week, see if we can be of support to you, befriend you. That would be a great thing for us. Uh, my name's James Howell, and I'm up front this morning with my friend and colleague, Reverend Jessica Dason. Good morning. It's great to be here with you. I hope you'll take a moment to look inside your bulletin on this little flap on the inside. There's lots of ways for you to get involved during the season of Lent. We hope that you will take the opportunity to perhaps add something, um, add a way to serve, to volunteer, to get involved with a Bible study or small group. But there are many ways for you to connect. You can check here or also check our website um, or reach out to any, any of us on staff and we'll be happy to help connect you. Friends, it is good to be together. We are so glad that you are here. Let us worship God together.
Let us continue to join our voices together as we profess our faith through the Apostles' Creed. It can be found in your bulletin. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us now come before God and confess our sins through our prayer of confession as it's printed in your bulletin. Our minds and hearts are consumed by busyness and brokenness. Pride and rancor shout loudly in our lives. We want to see as you see, to see ourselves as vessels of your love, to see and be kind to others. We want to hear as you hear, listening to the least of these, those wounded, debated, blamed, and left out. Free us from all bondage, free enough to be reconciled to you and with others. Consume our hearts and minds by your grace. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. The gospel reading is Mark chapter 8, beginning in the 31st verse. As he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. And he called them the multitude with his disciples, and he said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it 
a prophet, a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life. For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in his adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, Jackson, my friend, thank you for that reading. It is uh, one of the pivotal moments in Jesus' story uh, where the plot turns. Everything is different from this point forward. Jesus takes his disciples uh, far to the north to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, if you go with me there someday, we see and there was a it was a shrine that was originally dedicated to Pan, the nature of the God, the God of the forest and the wilderness. And then there was this massive cave there that was dark. And ancient people believed that was the entrance to hell, to the underworld. Jesus called it the gates of hell. And then by Jesus' time, uh, Caesarea Philippi was uh, decorated with a warren of temples that were dedicated to the emperor pandering there. <laughs> so Jesus comes to this place where the gods of nature, the gods of the empire, fears of the afterlife all come together. And the disciples believe at this moment that Jesus is the one, even in such a place. And then he explains to him what it means that he is the one. He says that he began to teach them that he must suffer and be rejected and be killed. It's interesting at that point, Jesus doesn't tell them that and then say, uh, so bye, it's dangerous where I'm going, uh, go play it safe. Jesus doesn't say, take up your pillow and take a nap. Jesus doesn't say, you know, hope things work out really well for you guys after I'm gone. No, Jesus says the strangest thing, and I wish I could tell you it was something else because I love you guys, and I wish I had a sunny, happy story for you. The ser sermon started really well, like you're excited already. I wish I had sort of a sunny ending that if you're just nice, everything will be nice. But that's not, not a Jesus thing, as it turns out. What Jesus says is, uh, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Taking up your cross doesn't mean, oh, you know, bear your burdens nobly. No, take up your cross. Anybody in the ancient world, they would have said, oh, that's what we call the green mile. That's death row. Jesus is saying, join me on death row. What could that look like? I thumbed back this week to a passage from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a Soviet uh, dissident, an earlier version of Alexei Navalny, I guess. Um, Solzhenitsyn wrote about life in the gulag, uh, being punished for being a dissident. Here, here's what he wrote. From the moment you enter the gulag, you put your cozy past behind you. At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. I shall never return to my old life. I no longer have any property. Only my spirit remains precious to me. I mean, Jesus' logic is so illogical. Jesus is like, if you want to find yourself, you lose yourself. If you want to save your life, you lose your life. Jesus is always doing this origami with our minds and our souls. Christianity is not about a cozy today or tomorrow. It's about your old life being over, putting it behind you. It's a different kind of freedom. Your property is no longer 
yours. You know, parenthetically, I find myself recently a senior pastor having to make financial decisions for the church, and, and we're always making decisions based on, you know, I don't quite have enough money. I mean, I think if we understood that our property is God's, we wouldn't be doing that. That's another day, another sermon. There's this moment when I was in seminary that was pretty remarkable, light bulb moment. Uh, the professor's talking, and he asked, why did Jesus die? And people routinely said, for our sins. And then he turned the question, though, and said, why did they kill him? And it doesn't make sense to say, why did they kill Jesus? For our sins. Not a great answer. Why did they kill him? And it's pretty clear why they killed Jesus. Jesus just crossed too many boundaries. Uh, the good people in those days, the good law-keeping Romans, the, the fine, upstanding religious people of the day, they had drawn good boundaries around themselves, and there were the, the oh, the others out there. The, the, they couldn't be trusted. They were dangerous. They, they were sinners. They were poor. They were, whatever they were, they were out there. We're, we're on the inside. And Jesus just had no patience with this. His only words of harshness and criticism came for those who thought they were in a position to judge the other people outside of the boundaries. And Jesus just kept traipsing across, boundary after boundary, after boundary, Jesus seems uninterested in our niceness. You, you guys all look very nice today. Well done on that. It's good. Jesus, though, I'm sorry to say, is not impressed by our niceness. Jesus wants us to follow him and cross bound boundaries. Cross boundaries. I thought a lot this week about what Jesus did not do, and I thought about it in light of a great novel uh, that I just read. It's called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's a great novel. It's about video gamers, but even if you don't know anything about video games, like me, uh, it's still a great novel. And one of my favorite lines in it comes from a guy, a character named Marks, who asked this question, what is a game? It's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. The game is only over if you stop playing. There's always one more life. Even the most brutal death isn't final. You could have taken poison, fallen into a vat of acid, been shot a hundred times. Still, if you click restart, you could begin the game all over again. Next time, you might get it right. You might even win. I wondered after, th after this if uh, one of the reasons we have so many mass shootings is that people grow up on games where you can shoot a bunch of people, you can be shot a bunch of times, but then you just click restart and ah, you get to do it again. For Jesus, there's no restart button. For us, it's not a game. There's no restart button. Jesus, brutal death was very final. Jesus did this for us. He did this out of his love for us. He did it to redeem the world. And the question is, how does this uh, work? We were in seminary. Uh, we uh, have a church history class, and we're taught theories of the atonement. Jessica and Taylor and I, you had that in seminary, right? They're nodding. This is the equivalent of a loud amen in a black church. So thank you for that. Theories of the atonement. So theologians over time tried to make sense of it. Why did Jesus, what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? So the first guy we study is named Anselm, and he lives in the 12th century. And his, his, his uh, version of it is that you have sinned, and God is very annoyed with you. In fact, God is raging angry with you. And the only thing to get you out of hock with God, because God's so angry because you sinned, is he, he's got to sacrifice somebody who is sinless, so his own son. He sacrifices his own son, then he doesn't have to be angry with you any longer. I think I grew up hearing some of that at church. 
And what a crazy idea that God's primary mode toward you is God is really angry that you have misbehaved and he'll even kill cruelly his own son to get you out of hock. I mean, that, that doesn't work very well. It's so heavy on the wrath of God. Uh, parenthetically, I say something about the wrath of God. I remember when I was in seminary, I worked in a church one summer. And the pastor kind of took his life in his hands and he said, I'll give you one shot at preaching. I thought, great. So I worked on this sermon and I stood up and my first sentence was, the wrath of God is something we really don't like to talk about. And I could see in people's eyes, they really didn't want to talk about it. And the sermon went downhill from there. And when church was over, the guy said, that was your one chance. You get confused about the wrath of God. I mean, what is it? I mean, it's a thing in the Bible, but I'm trying to think how to describe it this week. I mean, I think the, God is all mercy, so it feels like wrath to us when we crash up in our resistance against the mercy of God. God's all mercy, but we're trying to do things on our own. We're, we're trying to. We're not sure about this unmerited grace. I mean, we 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 want to earn our way, right? So, and then that begins to feel like. Or this guy named Chris Green. He's a Pentecostal theologian that I got to know during uh, the pandemic. He wrote this cool thing about um, Jesus says, "I must go and suffer," and Peter says, "No, Lord, no, no, this can't happen." And what Jesus says is, "Get behind me," right? So Jesus turns away from Peter. That feels like the wrath of God, right? God's turning away from you. But what Chris Green says is that as Jesus turns away from Peter, he's actually helping Peter to realize where he's supposed to be in the first place, which is behind Jesus. We're supposed to follow Jesus. Chris Green says he's not putting Peter in his place. He's helping Peter to find his place. Like, I love that. So you have Anselm, that's not such a great answer. Then, and then Abelard comes along, uh, you know, Abelard, Heloise, great medieval lovers. Abelard comes along and says, no, 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 it's not that God's angry, it's that God's full of love. Jesus dies on the cross to show us God's love. And there are other theories of the atonement that we could get into. Robert Jensen was a great theologian, died a couple of years ago. He said, there's not a theory of the atonement, there's just the biblical story. We just read the biblical story, and that somehow is our salvation. So the question for us is, where do you find yourself in Jesus' story? It begins up at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus, he knows the Romans are out for his head. And he could say, I think I'm just gonna go to Asia Minor, or somewhere far away where they will not find me. But no, Jesus, walks into the teeth of danger. Jesus walks into the place where those outside the boundaries are rejected because he, he can't have that any longer. And what Jesus has is so much courage. We don't talk enough about courage in the life of faith. We think, oh, faith is about you know, comfort and peace. But no, faith is about courage. God has some courage to live for God. In a world uh, like this, Jesus, this is so, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, they are so ugly to him. It is ugliness heaped on ugliness. And Jesus' response to the ugliness is he's just very quiet and he never retaliates. We live in a world, friends, where everybody retaliates. They may just do it in the privacy of their own mind. It's all about rancor. It's all about Jesus does not retaliate. He, he, he loves those 
who are ugly to him. It's not a show. It's not politeness. He actually does love them. Yeah, Jesus, at the beginning of the story, he's a miracle worker. He's drawing great crowds. He's an actor on the stage of history. But then after Caesarea Philippi, he doesn't really do miracles anymore, and he lets himself be handed over. I love that phrase, Jesus was handed over. I remember years ago, I had a church member. He was at my age. He had three kids the age of my children. Way too young, had colon cancer, and I'll never forget the day that he called me. He was a little teary. He said, uh, James, they've handed me over to hospice handed over. We live in a culture where we're defined by being productive, by being independent. Our greatest dread in aging is that we will no longer be independent, that we will be dependent, that we will no longer be productive, that we'll be handed over to others. This theologian W.H. Vanstone thought about that and said, what Jesus is trying to say is we have a different plot to glory. Jesus' way to glory isn't by being productive and having ever and ever stronger crowds, but that Jesus' true glory comes when he is handed over, and therefore maybe our glory comes at the unexpected time when we're no longer independent. I had a church member years ago, by the way, I went to visit her in the nursing home, and uh, she'd had a great, fabulous life, had done so many things. She was amazing. But in her old age, she had been reduced to bed. She was no longer mobile. And I went, I was ready to sympathize with her, and that was wrong. I spoke to her, and I said, what's it like here? She said, this is great. And I couldn't imagine how it was great. I said, What's so great about this? She said, you know, when I was a little girl, I always dreamed that one day I would be a queen and people would wait on me hand and foot. I wouldn't have to lift a finger, and here I am. <laughs> a queen. It was so lovely. I want to grow up to be <laughs> like her. I mean, sometimes there's that great story from uh, Mr. Rogers, right? Uh, there was a boy named uh, Jeff something, I forget. He was, a, he was paraplegic, and he was never very responsive, always confined to a wheelchair, seemed depressed. His mother noticed, though, that he perked up when he saw Mr. Rogers on the TV, so she applied for some grant from a foundation that sent Mr. Rogers to their home to visit this boy. And Mr. Rogers visited with him, then when it was time to go, Mr. Rogers took the boy's hand, and a reporter was watching and thought Mr. Rogers was going to pray for the boy, but instead, Mr. Rogers asked this boy, would you pray for me? And after they left, the reporter said, that was very clever of you to ask that boy to pray for you. And Mr. Rogers, typical, naive, right, has no idea. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I, I really wanted, I need that boy to pray for me. I figure anybody who's been through all he's been through must be very close to God. Must be very close to God. Jesus came to save us. He came to die for us. He entered into the darkest of all dark places. There's a photo exhibit in downtown Charlotte now on Auschwitz. You should go and see it. It's really a haunting, moving, beautiful. I don't know what all to say about it. Elie Wiesel tells about being in Auschwitz and on the horrific night when the Nazis took a boy and hung him and 
as the crowd watched this boy dangling there, Wiesel heard someone behind him ask, where is God? Where is God? Wiesel heard a voice inside his own head saying, there's God hanging on the gallows. We see Jesus on the cross. Jesus asks, where is God? Why have you forsaken me? And the answer is he, he's there on the cross. He is with us. He is one with us in our suffering. God came to redeem us from the inside out. And then the most amazing thing, I think of all, is when Jesus is on the cross, I don't know why this has just blown my mind for the last two years. I should have thought about it earlier in my life. Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down, and who does he see? I mean, yeah, there's his mother and a disciple, but none of his other friends are still there. But who he sees at the foot of the cross are the people that just drove nails into him and have been making fun of him and beating the daylights out of him, and they're down there gambling for his clothing. They have no idea who he is. They are not praying. They are not sorry. They're just earning a living for a violent government. And Jesus looks down at those people and forgives them. <laughs> like, that tells you all you need to know about the heart of God. Like, we love the idea that, you know, I'll apologize to God. I'll live a better life. I'll be holy. I'll go to whatever we think. But what, what Jesus is about is that much mercy. And that's part of why they killed him, right? The, the law keepers, like, you can't have that. Like, that's too much mercy. Like, we're earning our way in. Surely God will look at our goodness, but Jesus dies on the cross to say, it's just God's mercy. It's just God's mercy. We could say we're saved. What are we saved from? We're saved. We're saved from what? When I was a little boy, I didn't do a lot of church going, but when I went with my grandparents and... Their preacher, I, I like to say, the preacher's on fire. This guy, I don't think he was on fire. It's like he was a flamethrower. Like, it was scary. Like the room was hot already. It was summertime, no air conditioning, but then he's injecting fire into the room. And it's, you've sinned and you will burn. But it, and I was terrified because I thought, oh, I did put bubble gum under a chair. I'm sorry. I mean, just, it was just so... Is we saved from eternal torment? That can't be right. Maybe it's that God saves us from a vapid life. God saves us from a superficial life. God saves us from a pointless life. God saves us from a life that's just no more than accumulating experiences and toys. And then when you die, somebody at your funeral says, wow, he had a lot of cool experiences and some really neat toys. Maybe God doesn't save us from something as much as God saves us for something. God saves us for a life of purpose. God saves us for a life of belonging. God saves us for the joy of discovering what it's like to cross those boundaries and find new friends, new fellowship. God saves us for being part of something larger than ourselves and larger even <clears throat> than our own lives. Uh, I read tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, and then like, just to keep the rhythm going, I followed that up by reading Maggie O'Farrell's novel called I Am, I Am, I Am. I was kind of proud of that, like two threesomes back to back. So Maggie Farrell's book, the uh, subtitle is 17 Brushes with Death. And I thought, how could one person have had 17 brushes with death? After you read her book, you think, I've had 49 brushes with death. It's all the time out there just driving Charlotte. That's a brush with death. 
Anyway, brushes with death and the, the relief of still being here and so on. And here's the thing. Je Jesus came and died, and he did that so that we need not fear death. It's terrible. It's terrible, but we need not fear death. Jesus did say after he told Peter, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer and be rejected and be killed, that I will be raised on the third day. It's not, it's not a restart button to play the game again. <laughs> it's a new transformed eternal life. There are two ways to think about this, and one I'm not that fond of, but it's okay. The second I like a lot. So the first is this. Wallace Stevens, poet, novelist, wrote this. Death is the mother of beauty. Only the perishable can be beautiful, which is why we are unmoved by artificial flowers. Like, I love that. You love somebody, you don't send them artificial flowers, you send them real flowers. They're going to fade. That's part of the beauty. Rabbi Steve Leader responds to this by saying, the beauty of flowers is that they fade. The same for our lives. What meaning would a deathless life have? Would we not lack all ambition? Would we not lack all purpose? The beauty is, is that our lives are not infinite. We can only accomplish so much, so we must make the most of our time here on earth. I like that idea. It's not infinite. We make the most of our time. That's a good thing in a way that an infinite life might not be. But what I believe about this is way better, and if you'll forgive me, I want to share some uh, personal stuff, and then I'll be done. So is this, uh, the first significant death in my life uh, was my grandfather. I've shared with you some about him. We called him Papa Howell. He was just amazing. I remember when he died. It was my first time to be around this. So, you know, I was with family around the house and then mourners at the funeral home and at the service and by the graveyard. I just heard chatter. And what I kept hearing people say, it was like, oh, he's in a better place. Oh, he was a great Christian. He's with God. Oh, he's in heaven now, all this kind of stuff. And I have to be honest, that was no consolation to me. I wanted him here. I needed him with me. It still hurts to think that he's gone. And then two more recent deaths. Lisa's dad, our former senior pastor here, uh, died in October. He was 93. And I've had people say a lovely thing to me, which is like, well, you're so lucky that you got him that long to 93. I, I agree with that. At the same time, I know he was 93, but I miss him every day. I wish he had made it to his 94th birthday on July the 26th. And then, still just rocked by the death of our former music director, uh, Jimmy Jones. Um, you know, I went to speak at his funeral, and a lot of other people shared stuff. And they told a lot of funny stories and happy memories. and. People said he's with God and so on. I believe that. I have happy memories of Jimmy. But I said, which is, I think, how it, what everybody felt is, you know, I'm glad he's with God, but God, I wish he were here. I can't yet picture being in this world without him. 
just doesn't seem right somehow. And feeling that way is not a lack of faith. Feeling that way is what I think God etches into your soul when you love someone. You just can't let them go. And there's, some, there's a letting go, but at the same time, you, you wish they were here. You need them with you. And yet Jesus died for us, and, and what that leads to is uh, this uh, strange hope. I, I wish I'd looked up the quote. It's bad I didn't get that done before this morning. Marilyn Robinson, great novelist. My favorite of her novels is called Housekeeping. A lot of people don't know about it. It's a great book. On the last page of Housekeeping, uh, she says something like this, that every treasured memory, every beautiful thought that we've ever had, they turn over and over in us, and then we hope for the day when those memories and those thoughts will fulfill themselves. They will actually take on flesh. And she speaks in the quote of, of the wanderers, the perished, whose absence we always feel so keenly that one day those wanderers will walk through the door and they'll come in and they will stroke our hair and they will say, I'm sorry that I kept you waiting so long. I think it's that or what we sang a minute ago, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, <laughs> what joy shall fill my heart. See, God's not mad. God loves us that much, so much, and it's so beautiful. Thanks be to God.
Let us continue to pray. Heavenly God, here I am. Here you are. Here we can be together. No matter our exhaustion, our grief, our stress, our shame, our brokenness, you have not left our side. You remain with us as we wander through our lives. You love us wholly. Guide our thoughts, imaginations, and actions to encounter you in our lives and in our worship. Help us to experience you today and all days. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, this pain in this world we feel in our bodies, the exhaustion of sleepless nights, our tight chests, and the prayers that one day anxiety might untether its grip, the fog of depression casting a veil over the things in our life that bring us joy, hiding the things that inspire us, make us believe that the world is much dimmer than we remember it to be. Lord, may your peace be known. May we feel your healing presence, not only in our souls, but in our bodies. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, this week we are reminded that all children are beloved children of God. And we come to you with hope that we can live in a world that accepts all children as divinely known and loved by God. We lament that we still live in a violent place with so much hatred. Hear our prayers of sorrow, our prayers of repentance. Let your spirit guide us toward a safer, more loving world for all of God's people, a world where we will know less grief. But Lord, we know that there is grief in this time. So we lift our sadness and our grief before you. Lord, we especially lift up the families of Dottie Tobias, Cecilia Boyer, and the Reverend Sidnor Thompson III. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, help us to hold on to hope. Help us to be healers. Help us to be proclaimers. Embolden us to let the seeds of our kindness make changes in this world. Empower us to speak courageously when we have opportunities to make change in our world. Lord, help us to be the church. Help us to say yes to you whenever your spirit stirs in us. Help us to remember that we are doing this work together. And now let us pray the prayer your son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. As the ushers come forward, I want to say thank you for the ways in which you have continued to be a generous church. You have continued to give in a way that allows us to worship God together, to grow, and to continue to change the world. Thank you.
offer these gifts to you. May these offerings be a source of hope for the world. Help us to be your church. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Friends, now may the grace of our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of us both now and forevermore.